just for those of you who have not yet studied enough uh, Pali, <laughs> San Vega is translated as enthusiasm. Have you got another translation for enthusiasm? In, sort of enthusiasm. It's about right. And pasadi is calmness. No? I thought it was confidence. I, I was confidence. Passity. is confidence. Pasada. Oh, pasa. Oh, excuse me. Yes, pasada. Confidence. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, confidence. Faith. Like sada. Hmm? Pa is just a, a reinforcing word there. Great confidence. Well, um... The Buddha talks about uh, these four ways of coming to know something. Um, one of them is uh, through what we hear or what we see, something coming towards us. Um, you know, there are instances in the scripture where even, even his name, the Buddha, would say somebody like his, who became one of his main supporters, an Atapindika, just that word arose this enormous interest um, enormous well some vega this this sort of enthusiasm um, with that when you hear something uh, and we'll, we'll talk just within the spiritual field but it works with lots of things when you hear something it sort of raises an interest in you and after you've received that sort of information you would think about it yourself so that somebody else's thought as it were through your own uh, you know, interior dialogue uh, becomes as it were your own, uh, your own knowledge in a sense your own intellectual knowledge anyway and understanding come on in yeah Um, we're talking about Sambhaga and Pasadi Pasadi season. so you, you hear something which draws your interest and then having heard enough of it you sort of think about it yourself so the Buddha may have um, introduced you uh, so we say to, the, to his four noble truths you might have just been talking about suffering, the cause of suffering uh, I'm translating the word dukkha this is going to be a, a Pali lesson this evening <laughs> I'm translating the word dukkha as, as suffering unsatisfactoriness, whatever we can come to that later and uh, it might have raised your interest, so you go away and you think about it, you see. And that becomes your own uh, intellectual knowledge, as it were. It becomes part of your internal thinking. Uh, but it still hasn't got, as it were, the, um, the ring of truth in terms of experiential truth. And that's where the Buddha would have offered, uh, you know, the system of investigation that we call vipassana. Now, all the way along that line, this uh, enthusiasm, uh, you know, has to be there. Um, 
uh, enthusiasm is perhaps a, a big, too big a word really, uh, so it, it grows into an enthusiasm. And that enthusiasm comes out of this sadha, this, this faith. Now it's translated as faith, but it's just confidence, uh, putting one's trust in. So it's a sort of gradual process for somebody, shall we say, who's coming to uh, Buddhism for the first time, or indeed any, uh, any religious tradition. If you're born into it, it's, it's a given. You know, as a child, you're already developed that way. There's no, there's no questioning or there's no, um, there's no need to raise faith because it's, it's sort of within you as a child. But when you come to Buddhism um, at a different time in your life, then there has to be this sort of rather slow process of receiving that sort of information. And um, as you hear it, as you hear the Buddha's teaching and there grows in you a sort of interest towards it, that, that desire to take it further, you see, that's your sambhaga, that's your, that's your uh, energy behind it. And the energy behind it rests on this slowly growing uh, confidence in the teaching which, you've, which you're developing through, first of all, listening to what people have to say about the Buddha's teaching and then thinking about it yourself. Uh, <clears throat> but at some point it has to mature into your own personal experience, really, or else it... Um, it just remains a sort of a head level. It doesn't. It doesn't actually begin to flower, as you might say, within the heart as such. And um, the Buddha gave a particular methodology that he called, you know, meditation or vipassana. But it's not just that. It's, it is. It is actually uh, a fullness, a sort of discovery of the path in everything we do. So this develops into an understanding of what he then called the Eightfold Path. So the first part of the Eightfold Path, this, uh, this right understanding, uh, develops through these three particular ways. So the right understanding comes because you've listened to something, you've thought about it yourself, and this draws into, an in, in, into your attitudinal, it, it, it sinks into the heart as an attitude, and then there's that search to make it real. So that's your, that's your sambhaga, you see. That's your, and the joy that you get from that, from, from investigating. And uh, the investigation then uh, is both this process of uh, introspection, this process of examining your own psyche, really. And we'll come back to it in a minute. And then it has to begin to express itself in the way that we speak, in the way and what we do, and in our livelihood. So it has to be a sort of systemic thing. And uh, this sort of systemic effect of our understanding, uh, as it were, keep, you know, coils back on itself to deepen our understanding of the Buddha's teaching and uh, a greater desire to sort of keep investigating. And the method of investigation in terms of the, of the actual practice is through this uh, vipassana, which is, I suppose, in its, um, the easiest way 
to describe it, I think, at least to myself, <laughs> is that you're, you're making objective everything that you thought was subjective. So just as when you walked into this room, you didn't um, associate with it as being you, I mean, it wasn't that sort of um, psychosis, and you didn't also uh, develop an attachment to it as mine. So as you walked in the room, you might have looked around and caught the atmosphere of the room and all that and, and the, the windows, etc. So <clears throat> in a sense, you're trying to find a position within yourself to turn this internal, uh, inter inter this interior uh, room into something objective. So the outer walls of your body and what you get from your body, your, your sensations and feelings. And the atmosphere of the room, uh, your uh, emotional life and the thoughts that, that come through. And uh, as you begin to investigate that from the Buddhist perspective, um, which is always to try to understand where the mistake has been made, which is, which is actually causing us to... Um, uh, to feel either, you know, severe suffering in our lives, mental suffering, or, or even just discomforts. What something is is wrong with what we're actually doing, and that's what we're trying to investigate. You see, the the technique that we're using, which is causing us problems. As we begin to delve deeper in that, you see, two things are happening. First of all, you begin to actually see the Buddha's uh, teachings for yourself. And this then becomes your own personal experience. And with that, you get this greater sambhaga, this greater enthusiasm to keep on your investigation. Um, a lot of our science is driven, scientific discovery is driven by people who <clears throat> have that, uh, you know, that interest and then are driven by uh, a real desire to want to know. So that's, that's your, that's your sambhaga. So the one, as it were, sparks off the other. The more, the more you hear which raises your interest, the more you want to know. The more you get to know, the more your faith and confidence grows. The more you have confidence, the more you empower decisions to continue your investigation. See? And, and so it sort of rolls on, uh, just continues to roll on like that till hopefully we're all fully liberated. <clears throat> Thank you. Just wondering what the next bit of the <laughs> next next evening would be. Um, the uh, what the Buddha, uh, shall we say, what set him off on his path, well, on his own personal quest, was um, two things. First of all, there seems to have been some time in his young manhood where there was um, a weariness, a disenchantment with the pleasures of the world. Um, it's put in the story that he's had a big party and he wakes up in the morning and he just sees 
you know, people dishevelled and they've all got drunk. You know, you know, well, you know what it's like. And uh, and he thinks, well, this it is all an em- an empty thing. You see, just pleasure. Sort of an empty ex an empty experience. Um, usually, there's there, there are sort of questions about sexuality and whatnot, and I always bring this up because. Um, when it comes to just sex, you see, as a as a pleasurable experience, I always like to quote Woody Allen, who said, uh, "Just sex on its own is is an empty experience, but as empty experiences go." <laughs> <laughs> so, so the Buddha, one of the one of the things that happened to the Buddha was, this uh, is as a Bodhisattva, as a, as before he was enlightened, before he was liberated. Uh, was this feeling of the vanity of trying to seek happiness in just sensual pleasure. That's the first thing. And the next thing was a much more, uh, was a deeper sort of experience, which was more existential in the sense that um, it was about the basic path that we take towards uh, sickness, old age and death. So again, this is put in a sort of mythological way, where he he comes across somebody sick, old, and and a corpse. But um, it's really the the end game uh, of old of, of aging and especially death, which, as it were, puts the rest of our lives into a certain context. And what with his feeling that. Uh, all the pleasures that life could give him were sort of uh, had an emptiness to them, added to the fact that he know he knew that uh, death was at the end of the line, <coughs> threw him into uh, what we would call these days a, an existential crisis, and, <laughs> and it was this sort of existential crisis that really drove him to seek some answer. Uh, he was part of a wave of what was happening, a bit like the hippies of the 70s, you know, where there were lots of uh, men mainly, uh, few women because it was a bit of a dangerous occupation to be wandering about on your own, uh, trying to seek uh, liberation of one sort or another. And uh, he was part of that movement. In fact, the Jain, the Jain Lee, the Jain, fa- the founder of the Jains, uh, the Nigantha, Nigantaput, uh, he was a, um, a contemporary elder of the Buddha, you see. So th- there was a whole sort of movement of the time, and uh, it is said it's because, you know, this is what uh, the academics tell you, it's because society at that time was in a bit of a turmoil, much in the same as ours was moving away from a sort of pastoral, easy-go-lucky, more democratic society to a a monarchical, city-based, armies with elephants, all that sort of stuff. And uh, a merchant class making money. It was all sort of a big change going on. And um, that sort of uh, feeling of dislocation, alienation, all these lovely existential words. And so he himself is part of that movement and, and goes out to seek, the, uh, to seek liberation. In his words, to seek the end of, of this uh, dukkha. That's, that's the other big word 
in the Buddhist teaching. This, this dukkha, uh, actually, its root meaning it just means a hard place, you see. So life's hard, and then you die. That's what, <laughs> that's what the comedians say, isn't it? And uh, he's trying to find the, the reason for it, and whether there's an escape, see. So he works with various teachers, um, and one of the things was to create an internal um, an internal happiness which was not dependent on an external object so it's easy to get happy on a good film uh, ice cream and all that sort of stuff but through the practice of uh, absorption meditation and various techniques one can build within oneself an ecstasy so you don't you don't need to have an external object um, the techniques for that uh, vary but uh, one of them would be you know a mantra something repeated not just repeated but actually greatly intended and uh, it's much the same as the technique that we use to get ourselves depressed really where you say to yourself I am depressed I am so depressed I am really depressed I'm sorry. may all beings be depressed <laughs> see? See? so eventually you just feel so depressed if you say may I be happy see? may all beings be happy oh, I'll lift you a bit you see then there's um, uh, other techniques which we needn't go into at the moment but, but the point was that when he learnt these things although they created these beautiful spaces internal spaces within him, interior, interior loveliness, um, they came to an end. Um, he later incorporated these, these practices within his teachings, but um, he saw them as unsatisfactory. They weren't actually leading to, or weren't, weren't answering his deep question about... Um, how, how is it that we are conscious beings and we've ended up being unhappy? I mean, why, is, why is that? And, and was that the way it was? So having left, uh, he left both of his teachers and then tried uh, a form of self-mortification. And the understanding behind self-mortification is that the problem lies in the body. So all our appetites... Uh, uh, greed for food, lust, all these things, um, you can say, you know, derive from the body itself. So the idea was to reduce the appetites of the body. And he went through these rather long, long period of mortification, it would seem. And he said that all that did was made him suffer more. So he, <laughs> he sort of abandoned that. And it was really... Uh, after that, when he's quite, he must have been f feeling quite, um, uh, quite depressed, uh, <laughs> having not found any answer to it, that he is sitting by the roadside and a woman comes along with some rice pudding and offers him that and it sort of vivifies him. And of course, you all know the salvific 
the salvific effect of rice pudding. So, <laughs> so with that sort of a bit of energy, interestingly enough, he remembers this uh, incident in childhood. Now, in childhood, he's watching his father doing a ploughing ceremony, and um, he falls into a one of these absorption states. <clears throat> but it's not. He can't obviously be the same of these absorption states that he's learnt from these other teachers. There was something a little. There was something in that absorption state which was uh, something different, and what it was was this sense of curiosity hmm. and it was from that uh, position of curiosity that he then this samvega arose this enthusiasm suddenly he realised that maybe this was a way of investigating which would actually make him understand where the core problem was and because of his past practice and this tremendous San Vega that now came he found a lovely place which we now call Bodhgaya and under, a, under a, um, the fig tree the religious fig tree he sat and was, was sort of uh, clear enough to say that this is it. it I can't see anything else apart from this and I'm going to sit here and either I'm going to make it or I'm going to drop dead I'm going to die, which is uh, one hell of a resolution when you think about it. <laughs> Luckily for him and for us, he, he, he actually makes it within about six hours, that's what it says. And within that, um, within that insight, he, he sort of cracks the problem really as to where the root, um, the root mistake has been made. Um, and just for those of you who don't know just to finish the story he then of course uh, goes through it and he, he's very clear about what it is that he's come to understand and then there's that desire to teach that's the compassion that arises the anukampa which translates as moving towards the other see? So, <clears throat> and then of course begins his, his career there's a moment of doubt which is again put uh, mythologically as the the Brahma Sampati comes down and, and asks him, you know, that there are people only with a little dust in their eyes who can understand. Um, and then off he goes to seek his uh, five companions who'd left him uh, when he'd given up those mortifications. And, uh, and that's it, and that's the beginning of his teaching career. So... Um, this word liberation he's, um, he's liberated himself from what he calls this dukkha and uh, this dukkha has three components to it it's the first of all the relationship that we have to things that we don't like anyway and if you observe yourself um, you'll see that you're constantly moving towards comfort even even sitting here you might just catch yourself as soon as there's some small discomfort in the body there's a there's a shift there's a move there's a constant there's a constant effort to try and move away from what is uncomfortable yeah now you might say well of course that's absolutely understandable <laughs> what, 
why would I want to sit in discomfort? Well, um, obviously we should we should not sit in discomfort just for the sake of it, but it's the underlying understanding which is making us do that which is at fault here. And the fault lies in, you could say psychologically anyway, is in seeking happiness in sensual pleasure, seeking happiness in in this world that we experience. Um, and what we find, of course, is that that happiness is entirely dependent upon what you experience. And you can't control your experience. So you might, you might feel happy at this particular point, and then uh, somebody says a rude word to you, and then you feel unhappy. So it's a, you, because we're living in, in a world which isn't following our dictates, then we're constantly finding ourselves having to try to manipulate the world, try and do something with it in order to establish this happy mind. Yeah? So this constant seeking happiness in the world actually, paradoxically, puts us into conflict with it. Yeah? So you've got two uh, positions there. First of all, those things that we are drawn towards, which we find actually make us happy, calm, peaceful and all that, uh, <clears throat> because we rated happiness as being a mental state, we're therefore dependent upon the, on that which is creating our mental state. And therefore we tend to hold on to it, which is quite logical. You want to hold on to your money and your, and your friendships and, and all that. So that's what we mean by this sense of attachment. So it's driven by this uh, this wrong search for happiness, and it lies in this mistake that happiness is some form of mental state, some emotional state. But there's never a time when an emotional state is ever steady. You can't steady even your emotional states, even if you were to to try. They they keep changing. There's uh, an obvious reason for that, which is the second reason for this unsatisfactoriness, is that everything is in a process of, of change. Everything is moving. Everything, uh, what was, disappears, and what is, doesn't hang about much. And we just hope that something will be that makes us happy. <laughs> so when, when we actually uh, drive ourselves to the immediate reality that we live in, we find there's, there's not much there really because it's in this constant movement, constant change. So the idea of trying to hold something still, you know, get the world to stop, uh, is ridiculous. And the fact that we try and do that, the fact that we try to hold things, you know, this, this is it, you know, this is the way we want it to be, the way a relationship, we form a relationship with somebody, and that's the way we want it to to remain, you know, you're not the person I married, that sort of stuff. You see, all that uh, doesn't take into account that you can't stop change, you can't stop uh, this constant movement. And the other thing which undermines any hope, really, of trying to establish a permanent happiness in the sensual world is that uh, everything is dependent on something else. So even from that point of view, we don't have uh, any control. So if I if if I get great joy out of DVDs and my DVD player breaks down, it's, it's a catastrophe, isn't it? 
my TV breaking down, you know, something like that. So, <coughs> and, and a TV is dependent on all the little bits and parts. It's dependent upon uh, on the on the on the DVD <laughs> itself. I mean, when you begin to actually investigate the situation we're in, uh, we're totally dependent on something else. So this body is dependent on air. So dependent on food, something so basic like that. So trying to establish something which has such an, an interconnectedness with everything around us, trying to hold that, trying to maintain it, is a, it's a big job, isn't it? So you can see that this, this understanding of unsatisfactoriness uh, comes not so much, not because of the way things are, but because of our relationship to the way things are. And that relationship manifests in two very simple ways. You either hold on to what you've got at all costs, or you try and get rid of what you don't like. And that splits also into sort of a fork, because either you try to annihilate that which is uncomfortable, or you run for it. So, <laughs> so those are your three, those are our three basic positions. Yeah, one of holding, attachment, greed, etc. And one of um, aversion, which is either pushing away or running for it. So the question is, from what the Buddha, you know, began, is the question is, how do we, how do we get out of that? How do we find, and if you, if you do get out of that relationship, what is the new relationship? And what, what do you end up, uh, what sort of relationship are you moving towards? You see? So, <clears throat> partly with the vipassana, with the practice of vipassana, it's to understand those movements within our psyche, which is where the problem lies. And um, we begin to, as it were, having seen more clearly the idea that everything that I'm experiencing, everything that I thought was me, is actually in a process of change, never mind the world. Yeah? This, this body is in a process of continuous change, continual change. The mind is in a continual... You're not, it's not the same mind you were born with, is it? The one that we've got now. And any, any relationship I have to what I'm experiencing of holding on and of pushing away, I'm just getting myself into a confusion. I'm just getting myself into a, a, a constant conflict. See? And I try and bury all that. I just fling myself onto the couch, fall asleep. Or roll over when the, the alarm goes. It just gets too much. See? So even that becomes an escape, trying to, trying to find some sort of escape in oblivion, you see. Which is great. There's no suffering in oblivion. It's just you wake up. That's the, that's the problem. You could disappear forever. Whoa. But in Buddhist understanding, isn't it? Not, that's not possible. So he's trying to... So the um, understanding that psychology uh, takes us to 
a sort of deeper level which is about identity and that really takes us to the core problem and this is where this teaching about anatta, this not-self, arises and um, the Buddha's technique is not to make some sort of metaphysical statement there is no self or or there is anything like that what he's saying is when you look into yourself and look at your experiences can you truthfully say this is me say this is me and what the meditation is doing is drawing you into a position of the objective of observer within yourself and from that position uh, of an observation post within yourself you can begin to uh, observe what you're experiencing as an object now as you look at me now your vision is um, you know filled with me my my face etc but you can also become aware of the space between us and that space is the detachment is the distance so this also within yourself when you as it were sense a a sensation in your body or an emotion you see as soon as you've made it an object you've also created a space a mental space between that which knows your intelligence your intuitive intelligence and what it is you're experiencing that separation you see is the experience of not me not mine because in that space you can point to what it is you're experiencing and say well there is that which experiences or knows and what it is experiencing and knowing and that that little separation is an experience of not me not mine see as you then pull back to that position and feel yourself to be the witness the observer the feeler the experiencer there is still a sense of a me the one who experiences the one who feels the one who and it's really cracking that one that eventually takes us to that position of no self at all you see no sense of a me and and in our meditation you know when everything's very quiet you can even make that your object you can even make that sense of self an object the fact that you're aware of yourself the fact that you have this self-awareness even now you can be aware of yourself listening to me see even the fact that you're aware of yourself means you can't be the self you're aware of it's already an object even as you sit within yourself and sometimes you clear everything out and you get a great sense of presence a sense of being so it's a sense of being you can't be that we'd like to be that but but you can't be what you're aware of tricky one isn't it (laughs) so then the question arises well who the hell am I and it's driving your investigation to answer that question which uh, allows us to have this final experience uh, 
of what the Buddha called Nibbana, even if it's only an inkling of it, even if it's only a little insight. And that's your liberation. Now, this word Nibbana is rather interesting. There are various explanations, there are various attempts to try to find its um, etymology, its sort of root meaning. And various uh, writers and teachers plumb for one or the other. Some say it's some sort of um, the losing of heat. So it's a sort of uh, cooling, right? Cooling process. Cooling the suffering is cooling. But the one that I particularly like is um, unshackled. And uh, there are two reasons because of that. Because it seems as though that is a root meaning of the word Nibbana. But also because in the process of our liberation, we get rid of what's known as the fetters, is what the Buddha called them, the fetters. And uh, there are ten of these fetters, we don't have to go into them in, uh, in any great detail. But the, uh, the one that's of, um, of interest is the fetter that this personality is who I am. Now, although we would all desire uh, to have our 15 minutes of ecstatic celebrity, the fact is that when you look into your personality, your character, you find that it's just made up of of particular attitudes, of particular characteristics, the one dependent on the other, a lot of it dependent on the situation you're in. You don't know, for instance, how courageous you are until a situation demands that you be courageous. Yeah? You know, often we think of people who've been caught up uh, in prisons, you know, uh, you know, the Tibetan monks and and uh, people who are caught up by Islamic extremists uh, in the Middle East, uh, you know, a few years ago, and everybody asked them, "How did you have the strength to go through it?" You see, and invariably they say, you know, things like, "Well, you just find it." You know, everybody's got it within them. Although I know some people didn't fare so well, but the fact is, you don't know where you are in terms of your uh, virtues and so on so until the situation uh, demands demands it of you you see so um, one of the insights that you are released of is that you are not that even your personality your character is something which is developing changing dependent on and so forth the other one is the understanding that rites and rituals won't get you very far in terms of the process of liberation. And although that doesn't mean to say that you can't have rites and rituals, you just put them in the right perspective. They're there really to create an ambience, an effect. So, you know, you walk into a beautiful temple and it has a certain atmosphere and ambience, it has a certain uh, scent to it, you know, sandalwood, candles and all that. But no matter how much you bow to the Buddha statue or light many candles, it's not going to get you, not going to get you that far. It might make you feel good, but it's not going to get you that far. So uh, this uh, these this unshackling, see this unshackling of what? The unshackling of this intelligence, isn't it? Unshackling the intelligence, this intuitive intelligence, from what? From its 
misunderstandings, his delusions. So if we reverse that process, this intelligence finds itself within this um, psychophysical organism. I like saying that. It finds itself within this psychophysical organism. And it's quite understandable that it should say, well, this is what I am. This is what I am. And within that, within the experience of this, of, of being a human being, um, we try to make, we try to create heaven. It's understandable, isn't it? And it's only when we fail and end up feeling quite miserable that we, we think, well, there might be, um, maybe, I'll get, maybe I'm getting something wrong, you see. Uh, and that's, of course, when you search for meditation. And, and then you begin to reverse that process of undoing the wrong identities and the wrong search for happinesses uh, and slowly as it were pull back from that commitment you had to this life form thinking that this was going to deliver okay. now you might say well that's all well and good so where does that lead us you see I mean you end up being a sort of amorphous blob Having, having left your body, society, and all that, uh, you know what's the what's the end game of that? Is it? Well, uh, paradoxically, it leads you back into an engagement. So first of all, we find ourselves in an engagement which is which is causing us problems, causing us to suffer, feel alienated, etc., etc. We then go through this process of pulling out of that which feels sometimes like a loss, you know, like you, you might have enjoyed a few glasses of wine and then you realise that uh, getting inebriated is not quite the path. And so you have to pull out of those areas where you were um, finding at least some sort of uh, uh, temporary happiness. And as you do that, of course, you have to re-establish a new relationship with the world uh, that we find ourselves in. So, um, these, this is manifested uh, as a transformation of our former attitudes. So, whereas the world was there to feed us, the world was there to make us happy, huh, that's turned around in a relationship of wanting to make the world feel happy. So what was selfishness now becomes generosity. And that's a very different relationship where you're not demanding anything of the world and yet in helping others you find your joy. Okay. Whereas once you found yourself in contradiction with the world, a hatred with the world, you then re-establish one which is looking upon others and the world itself as friendships as friendliness and all the virtues you would expect of a friend care and stuff and that relationship of, uh, of friendship I'm, I'm, or goodwill perhaps that's the best translation of the word meta goodwill you can see that uh, compassion, the desire to help where it's needed, arises naturally, as you would with any friend. Yeah? And sympathetic joy, to rejoice in other people's good fortune and so on, arises naturally from that 
basis of goodwill. So whereas once uh, even those acts of goodwill had within them some sort of kink of self-regard, even acts of compassion were driven also by perhaps some unacknowledged desire to, uh, um, to please oneself, uh, now become much more true acts of compassion and with it there comes as a return a real pure joy. So uh, just take a very simple example. If Somebody's, you know, if somebody says to you, would you, you know, uh, a friend says, you know, I've, I've just got a, a new apartment, a new flat, you know, uh, you know, would you like to come and, and do a bit of painting for me? So he says, oh, it's fine, love to do it, you see. So you go over there, but there's a sort of um, uh, underlying small print, you know, when I need a bit of help, uh, you will come to help me, see. <laughs> and of course, when your friend doesn't, well, what sort of friend is that? Is it? <laughs> and so, all the time, even when we're actually doing something at a conscious level, which feels to us to be compassionate, joyful, etc., we're sometimes not aware of these subliminal demands that we're making. And these more subtle uh, demands, remember, are always turning the other into an object to please us. That's what you're doing, isn't it? Every time I do something with some unwritten contract underneath that you will come to please me, I turn you into something to please me. I, I turn you into an object. I lose that sense of you being a, a human being. That's what attachment does, doesn't it? When it comes to um, things like loneliness, so loneliness is uh, driven by a, an internal feeling of perhaps not being loved or not being wanted or something like that. Yeah, it's not a, a pleasant feeling. Normally speaking, we wouldn't want to stay within that atmosphere, so we call a friend and tell them, "A bit lonely tonight." And they're lonely, so why don't we why don't we go out together and uh, and create company? See? And then our sense of joy of being with somebody is an escape from really looking at the causes of our loneliness. And we think that the cure of loneliness is simply more society. Yeah. But then you get bored with your mate, with <laughs> your friend, and you get into this seeking seeking company at all costs. Now, if we were then instead to sink into that feeling of loneliness, to come to, 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 come to feel it, to come to actually experience it fully within ourselves, for no other reason than but to allow it to express itself, we may find to our uh, surprise that once it begins to exhaust its energy, as it were, no matter how nasty the feeling is, it very slowly, as it were, moves towards its own transformation. And that transformation we call solitude, just being at one with oneself. Um, 
And that works really with all the negative states that we have. To be able to sit with it, not as a thought pattern, be very careful here, you see. If you sit with it as a thought pattern, it is unwittingly developing itself. Because it's through thought and imagination that our, uh, that our emotional states develop themselves. I mean, even on a, an obvious sort of negative uh, level, you know, if somebody says something to you in the morning which has upset you slightly, but you brushed it away, you haven't, you haven't really looked at that, you've just brushed it away as being nothing to worry about. And then in one unguarded moment over the morning cup of tea, you're saying, how could the bloody... <laughs> and you're eating and biting the biting your fork when you're eating. <laughs> See? <laughs> no, stop, stop, stop. And then by evening, you have to take an aspirin. Try to overcome the headache that you've got. This person's only insulted you once. But you've been at it all day. Repeating the insult, making it, churning it over. Then you begin to realise, oh, what the mind is doing is churning. You see, it's just churning, just stirring the whirlwind. So, <clears throat> when, we, when we want to really heal ourselves of all this negativity within us, we find the answer lies actually within the body, within that, within that emotional state. And it's sinking into it, and sitting with it, and bearing it, and allowing it to express itself, no matter how awful it might be. You know, dreadful anxieties, uh, even at worst, things like suicidal feelings, you know, just to stay with that and let the heart speak its pain, as it were, which it does through feeling, and to just stay there patiently, you see, and to attend to it, see, to attend to it. You can even attend to it with a sense of compassion. You can even flavour your attention with uh, a little warmth, a little, for want of a better word, a little hug. See? just to embrace your own suffering and in so doing you're allowing this I mean what is it See? what is it when you go down and feel an emotion and you've taken away its word when you've taken away the word depression when you've taken away the word anxiety see? and you go into the feeling of it I and mean, what is it what do you come up with you come up with a very different words heaviness burning, uh, agitation. And it's coming off that conceptual mind completely and entering into the feel, into the actual feel of an emotional state that paradoxically allows it to expend its energy. And in so doing, you may be fortunate enough, not always, it's, it's, not, it's not always obvious, you may actually be experience that transformation where suddenly that restlessness drops and you're completely at calm, where the hatred has turned and you, you feel in a very loving state, where the loneliness suddenly disappears and you're perfectly happy within yourself. Not to say that these states do not arise again. <laughs> Would want to give anybody false hope. So... <clears throat> That business of liberation is both a, a, um, a, a conceptual liberation, a beginning to understand where our concepts have led us, where our presumptions have led us. 
it has to be driven more deeply into the heart base it must be driven into uh, what we call our emotional mental state life and there there's no there's seemingly no other way out than to bear than to allow the heart to speak its problems and if you don't it'll come out through the body anyway <coughs> in you know psychosomatic upsets back pain headaches and so on even even severe disease And it's only then, through that process, that we begin to uh, begin to experience uh, how it might be. You see, how it might be if I can just move this different relationship. If I can find a different relationship to life, how it might be. And that's where, going back to our earlier uh, question, you get this surge of interest, this desire to carry on, to want to take this process to an end so it's that it's that process of understanding of the practice of seeing how the liberation comes which moves you to further practice further investigation point of clarification are you implying that back pain headaches and serious disease all emerge from the same origin? No. <coughs> the body itself, as you know, has its own, well, intelligence, for a better word. And we can't say that all illnesses obviously come from that. I mean, obviously one of them is asbestosis, you know, the disease you get from breathing in asbestos. Sure. Mm. Fine, yeah. But the suffering, of course, that arises when we get a disease like that is also self-generated. That's not caused by the disease, but by our relationship to disease and life, etc. And really, that's where I think the the um, uh, should we say the cutting edge of investigation is most profitable. Is to see, be constantly aware of our relationship to what it is that we're experiencing, and to to just be awake to whenever we're holding on to something you know to really catch the the conversation that's going on beneath the obvious 